I'm Renaud Broussard. And I'm Jasmine Moulton. And this is a Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. It's good you've tuned into today's show because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just announced that he's going to be jacking up the carbon tax. And we'll answer the question you've all been wondering, how much is this going to cost you? Then, just when you thought the Canadian Infrastructure Bank couldn't manage taxpayers' money any worse, you won't believe how much it spent just terminating its CEO. We've got all the juicy details. But first, we're going to take a closer look at the federal government's recent economic statement and some of the, well, kind of stupid proposals being put forth to pay for it. Jasmine, let's start with this. Just how much money is the federal government actually spending? According to its fall economic statement released in November, the government will spend $642 billion this year. That's about $1.8 billion every single day, or more than $20,000 per second. Well, fortunately for Trudeau, it seems his theory about budgets balancing themselves hasn't really seemed to pan out. So just how much of the spending is going on our national credit card? Well, the deficit will hit $382 billion at least this year. And as a CTF's Ontario director, I want to just take a minute and focus on this because Ontario has the embarrassing global distinction of being the largest subnational debtor on the planet. The province's debt will hit $398 billion this year. And that's the total debt that Ontario has basically racked up since it has existed. But the feds are borrowing nearly that entire amount in one single year. So it should really terrify everyone listening to this podcast that, again, in one year, Trudeau's racking up the same amount of debt that Ontario, the world's largest subnational debtor, has in its entire existence. That's a really scary number. But Jasmine, let's take a look at the feds' total debt. Because deficits change every year, there's one daunting number tallying up in the background that will eventually need to be paid off. By now, most of our supporters know and they're aware that the federal debt is about to surpass $1 trillion. It'll hit $1.1 trillion by the end of this fiscal year. But to get there, that means that Trudeau is adding about $1.1 billion to the debt every single day. All right. So to recap for our listeners, Prime Minister Trudeau is spending $1.8 billion every single day, but he's only got enough cash to pay some of the bills. So $1.1 billion, or about 60% of what he spends every day, goes on the national credit card. Did I get that right, Jasmine? That's depressingly right, Renault. So Trudeau, if you think about it this way, will have added over $20 million to the national debt just by the time our listeners are done listening to this podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks so much for bearing it with us with all of these numbers talk. Because, you know, we're talking about millions, billions, hundreds of billions. Some of it just isn't really relatable. So Jasmine, what do all of these number means uh, for our listeners? Well... Debt today means taxes tomorrow. So everything that Trudeau is putting on the national credit card now will eventually need to be repaid. Each individual Canadian's portion of the federal government's debt will hit about 26000 bucks by the end of this year. And that is up about $10,000 since last year. And Renault, this is all money that's going to need to be repaid. So each man, woman, and child in Canada already has a $26,000 future tax bill hanging over their head? That's absolutely crazy. So we're going to have to find a way to pay for it somehow, right? 
And then does government say something about how it wouldn't raise taxes to pay for the pandemic spending? Like, how is it planning to pay for it? They did promise that, but Trudeau has already broken that promise by raising a bunch of different taxes, including the carbon tax, which I'll let the next segment of this podcast, uh, they'll dive deeper into that. But the fall economic statement also contained a bunch of tax grabs, and none of them will come even close to covering this government spending tab. Can you give us an example? Sure. So next year, the government slapping a tax that consumers will pay on services from companies like Netflix, Spotify, Airbnb, and even Amazon. But to be clear, we'll be the ones paying this, not the companies. So in total, the government estimates that this new tax will bring in just over $3 billion in revenue in five years. But here's the problem. Trudeau would burn through that revenue in less than two days at his current rate of spending. And maybe even quicker because the fall economic statement hinted at huge expensive plans like national child care or even $100 billion in so-called stimulus spending. But that starts after the economy starts recovering. You know, if you're if you're blowing through five years of revenues in just two days, you might have a, a spending problem. It's very clear it won't go very far towards tackling Canada's trillion dollar debt. But were there any other tax increases in the fall economic statement? Yes, but again, none of them even come close to covering Trudeau's crazy spending problem. There were references to an empty home tax and some changes to taxation on employee stock options as well. But as Jack Mintz pointed out in a recent article published in the Financial Post, these tax measures are all just what he calls baby steps in terms of actually paying for Trudeau's wild spending. Mintz writes, and I quote, Canadians won't like what's about to come next. The higher taxes that the current lack of fiscal discipline makes inevitable. So if the Liberals don't have a serious plan to pay for all of the spending, are there any other parties proposing something of substance? Well, we've been paying close attention to the NDP because in the current minority parliament, the Liberals have to rely on either them or the Bloc for confidence votes, and they've relied quite heavily on the NDP so far. The NDP solution to pay for all of this pandemic spending is to make the, quote, ultra-rich pay for it. They put forth a motion calling for a wealth tax back in November, which the Liberals voted against. But if the Liberals have to rely on the NDP to pass their budget this coming spring, we might just see such a proposal for a wealth tax resurface. Most of our listeners would agree that tax hikes are the last thing that average taxpayers need right now. But we may have some listeners who like the idea of the pandemic debt burden falling on the shoulders of the so-called ultra-rich. So Jasmine, why does the CTF oppose a wealth tax on Canada's top 1%? Because... You might be surprised to find out who would actually be impacted by the wealth tax that the NDP is proposing. When you think of Canada's top 1%, usually you think of wealthy bankers in Toronto or dynastic families with large fortunes like the Westons or the Irvings. But this wealth tax could realistically impact a lot of family farmers. I grew up in the country in southwestern Ontario. And I know a lot of farmers who may feel cash poor sometimes, but on paper, there's actually quite a bit of money tied up in the family farm. When you think of 
they're quickly appreciating acreage to quota or large machinery, there are many Canadian farmers who would realistically surpass the NDP's $20 million wealth tax threshold. That's a very good point. And liberals would have to be pretty brave to try and hit farmers with an utter tax after what a carbon tax has already cost them. But, and let me play devil's advocate here. Maybe it would be worth it if wealth tax would cover, I don't know, like the entire cost of the pandemic spending. Well, that's the crazy part, Renault, is the parliamentary budget officer estimated that a wealth tax might have brought in $5.6 billion this year. Now, recall from earlier in the show, we calculated that Trudeau spends $1.8 billion every single day. So that means that if the PBO is right, that he'd burn through revenue from a wealth tax in about three days. So this goes, you know, (laughs) it's not going to pay for even a small fraction of the pandemic spending. And the PBO said there's a lot of uncertainty that a wealth tax could even bring in that amount. And it's really difficult, if not completely impossible, to calculate what the negative economic impacts would be. So in Europe, for example, most of those countries that had wealth taxes have abandoned them because the wealthy fled and fled with their assets, leaving those countries. So in other words, Renault, a wealth tax like most get-rich-quick schemes, sounds easy and painless, but it's probably too good to be true. That's That was a very compelling suppose I did, Jasmine. I think you have me convinced there. And it sounds like there'll be no quick fixes to dig our way out of this hole. It's time for Deep Dive, and that's the part of the show when we dive into important topics for taxpayers And today we've got our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, on the show, and he's got something that I know is going to make your blood boil. So Aaron, why don't you kick us off? Boy, let's just put it right out there. Uh, We're going to talk about Justin Trudeau's plan to increase the carbon tax to, wait for it, $170 per ton by 2030. That's a 250% increase uh, over what he originally said it was going to be, which was just $50 a ton. That's 40 cents per liter at the gas pumps. So if your family need to fill up your minivan, you're looking at an extra 30 bucks per fill up just in carbon taxes by 2030. Yeah, these are some huge costs. So let me iterate it for a listener. So Trudeau's carbon tax is currently set at $30 per ton. Now we knew he was going to increase it to $50 per ton in 2022, but now he just announced that it's going all the way up to $170 per ton. Aaron, uh, it's not even like Trudeau has any mandate to do this because not once did he say he was going to increase the carbon tax past the $50 per ton amount when he was campaigning in the 2019 election. Yeah, you know, Franco, it's actually worse than that. His government told Canadians the opposite. They said that they weren't going to increase the carbon tax, so they lied. In fact, you have his former environment minister, who everyone knows, Catherine McKenna. She was asked before the election uh, if the Trudeau government was going to increase the carbon tax. And here's what she said. In 2016, we negotiated for a year with provinces and territories. Um, that included a price on pollution until 2022. So there is no intention to go up beyond that. Um, any de- any decision would be made in discussions with provinces and territories with stakeholders. So you can see McKenna lied. This was before the last election. Um, Her party misled millions of Canadians about their real intentions, which was, of course, to secretly impose this this massive carbon tax hike after the election. 
And it's not just Trudeau's former environment minister who's breaking a promise because Trudeau's breaking a promise too. Um, only a few months ago, Trudeau said he was not going to be increasing taxes or costs on struggling Canadians uh, who are struggling through an obvious downturn right now. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Here's what he said. No, uh, the last thing Canadians need uh, is to see a raise in taxes right now. Uh, millions of Canadians are out of work and looking for work. The economy is still uh, nowhere near uh, where we need it to be. Uh, we have work to do and we are not going to be saddling Canadians with extra costs. Yeah, so Trudeau is pretty clearly on the record saying he's not going to be saddling Canadians with extra costs. Well, Aaron, as you mentioned, a $30 in extra carbon taxes just to fill up your family's minivan sure sounds like extra costs for me. And I mean, I don't want to, I don't need to point out the obvious, but I'm going to do it anyways. This is this type of tax hike is obviously coming at a time when government should be looking for ways to ease the burden on Canadian families and businesses, not hammer us with additional costs. And, you know, this is also coming at a time when we haven't heard from the Supreme Court. This is obviously was heard by the Supreme Court. The challenge to this law uh, was heard in September. The CTF was there as part of it. We were actually the only non-governmental organization intervening uh, in that that case on behalf of taxpayers against the carbon tax. And we think there's a good shot uh, there. But, you know, they didn't even wait for that uh, decision to come down. Um, and it's important, an important decision because uh, the lower courts are mixed on this. Alberta's Court of Appeal actually ruled that it was unconstitutional. Uh, so, you know, we're still waiting to hear. Hopefully we'll hear from the court in the coming months on this and they will they will strike down this uh, this uh, carbon tax and, and put an end to this terrible plan. Yeah, well, unfortunately, before then, I do have to be the bearer of even more bad news. And that's because Trudeau is getting ready to hammer Canadians with his second carbon tax. Now, I have to be super clear about this. This second carbon tax this is going to be layering costs on top of the current carbon tax that we've been talking about. So this second carbon tax is not going to replace the current carbon tax. Now, what we're expecting is we're expecting Trudeau's second carbon tax to be hidden in regulations that are going to require producers to reduce the carbon content of their fossil fuels or have to pay uh, that big second carbon tax. Now, we've already heard from economists uh, who've been, you know, warning that these costs are not just going to be hurting the big producers because they're going to be passed along to everyday Canadians, you know, our families and our small businesses and Canadians for affordable energy. Now they produced a, an in-depth report on the cost of Trudeau's second carbon tax. And there's a lot of eye popping numbers in there, but let me just read one statistic that our listeners need to know about. And it's that Trudeau's second carbon tax, it could increase the cost of gasoline by 10 to 19% depending on what province you're living in. So you know what's clear to me? It's clear to me that Trudeau seems to be having trouble coming up with policy ideas that don't cost taxpayers a ton of money. Yeah, and I guess the only good news is we do have, we're starting to see some politicians standing up to these carbon taxes. Uh, here's the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, reacting to Trudeau's uh, carbon tax announcement. Uh, I, I, I just can't understand uh, for the life of me why anyone would want to put a burden on the backs of the hard-working people of this province. Folks, this carbon tax is going to be the worst thing you could ever see. It's going to increase the cost of your groceries. It's going to increase the cost of traveling. It's going to increase every good and service you have out there. But not only that, if I were to tell you right now that you're going out tomorrow and you're going to pay 30 cents more a litre, on gas, you'd be floored, but it's not tomorrow. 
It's going to be in one year, 2022. You will be paying over 27.6 cents a liter. So the average price, what is it, a buck oh two? It fluctuates. We, we saw it a little below a dollar. Imagine increasing that cost to all the all the uh, truckers out there, to all the food distributors, and you are going to be holding the burden for for what? We we can protect the environment. I'm a strong believer of protecting the environment, but you don't have to protect the environment on the backs of the hardworking people of this province and this country at a time that we're just people are barely holding on by their fingernails and you want to throw a 30 percent cost of living increase onto the backs of the people that are working and be it in the factories or the offices i i, I was floored when i heard this I, I a matter of fact i couldn't believe it i had to double check and he's not the only one uh the energy ministers of the four atlantic provinces actually all sent a joint letter uh, to the Prime Minister opposing a second carbon tax. And I just want to quote a little bit from it. Um, quote, while we support efforts to reduce emissions, we have some shared concerns about the proposed clean fuel standard, that's Trudeau's second carbon tax, and the impact it will have on the Atlantic economy and on Atlantic Canadians who have the highest level of energy poverty in Canada. Now, the letter goes on to say that the impacts of Trudeau's second carbon tax will, quote, occur at a critical time as our economies are already struggling to recover from the devastating effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's good news that we're starting to see some politicians from all over the country taking a strong stand against uh, this carbon tax hike and the second carbon tax. But of course, you know, the more the merrier, and we'd like to see more politicians speak up as well. Well, that is for sure, because we really need all hands on deck to stop Trudeau's carbon tax hike before it massively increased the cost of living. And we also need to stop Trudeau before he imposes his second carbon tax. So we're going to include a link to our online petition to scrap the carbon tax in the show notes. So, so please sign in if you've already signed it. Thank you so much. But please share with your friends and family so we can get more taxpayers pushing back against this carbon tax hike. And we're also going to include Trudeau's contact information in in the show notes so you can give him an earful and uh, let him know exactly what you think about his carbon tax hikes and now it's time for waste watch this is when we like to make fun of some of the dumb things that governments are wasting your money on uh and we've got our investigative reporter james wood with us today so james what have you got for us so today we're going to be talking about the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. Now, the bank has come up in the news a few times over the last few months for various reasons, which I'm sure you're well aware of. Yeah, I, I've been following this bank since its birth, uh, you know, with the Trudeau government. It's a very interesting entity. It had a sort of promising introduction. You know, the, the idea was you were going to, taxpayers were going to put in a little bit of money and it was going to attract all this private sector money. And the result would be, we'd get to build all this wonderful infrastructure across the land. It would cost taxpayers a lot less. Surprise, surprise, that didn't happen. And so the bank's kind of been repurposed as basically a piggy bank uh, for the Trudeau government. It's not really a bank in any sense anymore. It's more just like another government department where the, the government decides to spend on their pet projects and uh, it's, it's, it's taxpayer money that's driving the bus, so to speak. Yeah. And, and so with a lot of the news reporting I was seeing about this bank over the, the past year, there was one big question mark that's been kind of hovering over them since, uh, since April. And that was how much their former CEO, Pierre Lavalley, got when he left in early April. According to multiple reports, he could have gotten a hefty payout on the way out the door, though the bank has never actually said how much he got. They have disclosed 
that they paid out just over $3.8 million in termination pay last year, being 2019, 2020, in the same time period that uh, Mr. Lavely left. But their rate of turnover was disclosed at the same time. And it looks like just over eight people left the bank in the past year. Now, when you break down the numbers, that means that the people who got tossed, whatever, whatever way they ended up leaving, uh, they might have walked away with just over $430,000 on average per person. 430 grand per employee, that I think is what most people would consider a golden parachute or a good deal. <laughs> and again, we don't want to speculate. We don't know if people are being fired or leaving or what the reason is, but yeah. they, they are in one way or another, they are not working there anymore. And they are yeah. taking an average of 430,000 per person. That is uh, that's pretty astounding. But, you know, obviously this, as a CEO, uh, Lavalet's exit probably generated the most interest. And were you able to zero in at all on, on how much he was paid? So unfortunately, like it's, it's, it's a hard target to hit. So I had filed a slate of ATIPs around his exit and I was looking for how much the severance might've been and what was happening at the bank at the time that led to the exit. Now, the bank shut down my request for his payout, though I've got a couple of requests on that front still pending, but there are records showing hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments to a Toronto legal firm and a private communications firm around the same time that Lavalie left his role. So, okay, so we don't know how much he got when he left, but we can, I guess, just add this to the pile of questionable spending with this particular uh, government entity. Um, do we know how much uh, each payment was? Well, a little bit of detail first on the actual request that got the documents. In June, I asked the bank for documents dealing with Lavalie's exit that mentioned the following keywords, which would be resignation, termination, severance, audit, and review. The package I got back included a bunch of emails between a law firm in Toronto called Tories and now outgoing Deputy Finance Minister Paul Rochon, as well as Deputy Infrastructure Minister Kelly Gillis. Lavalie's exit was officially announced April 3rd of this year, and additional records show the law firm invoicing the bank $172,626 for professional services on April 13th. Now, I've had uh, some interactions with the Access Information System in Ottawa, and I'm going to guess that the emails uh, didn't give you the detail we're looking for in terms of uh, what they were, exactly they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. In, in terms of any like hard details of what these folks are talking about, it was mostly redacted. But there was a long comms package prepared by Navigator, a Toronto-based communications firm. I was a bit surprised to see them handling this, but it prompted me to ask the bank how much the firm was paid and what exactly they did. The response to that ATIP, Navigator was brought on to provide communications-related advice to support external legal advice provided to the board of directors and the management of the CIB. That's the full quote they gave me back. And it cost us $54,804. That's interesting. I think some people uh, who don't know about Navigator, they are a what we call a high stakes crisis communications firm. In fact, I believe their, uh, their slogan is when you can't afford to lose. Um, anyway, they are the firm that, uh, that the bank hired. Um, and all of this, of course, ties back to Lavalais exit in April um, for the reasons that, uh, that we still don't know uh, or that we're in the dark about. Yeah, like there's, we don't know what was going on. We just know that he's gone and it probably cost us this amount of money. Now, obviously, we had to ask the bank about this. Big surprise. They didn't have any comment to make. 
I followed up with them after a first set of questions, asking specifically about the $3.8 million in termination costs they had handled the past year, why they went with Tories and Navigator, and again, how much Lavalie got on the way out the door. And again, they didn't say anything. Yeah, that's uh, not a big surprise, uh, knowing the way these uh, institutions work. And, you know, uh, obviously this bank is uh, is here to stay, even if it's been repurposed from a bank to, I guess, a piggy bank for the uh, Trudeau government. Um, but I'm glad, uh, James, you're certainly keeping, uh, keeping on them and making sure that uh, we can find as much information as possible about uh, how they're spending our money. Yeah, at, at the very least, hopefully we can see how much the how much the CEO cost us on the way out the door. For anyone looking to know more, a link to my exclusive story will be included in the show notes of this episode. All right, so that's our show. I want to say a huge thank you to our investigative journalist and podcast editor, James Wood, who makes us sound like we know what we're talking about and cuts a lot of the ums that we're probably saying a bunch of times. So thanks for everything, Tempo. And thanks to you, all of our listeners who have helped to make the show such a success. Now, please help us if you enjoyed this episode, like, share it, tell a friend, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get our podcasts and uh, let others know so that they can enjoy the show too. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening. And thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.